Right, we are continuing in Exodus today. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 7. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, pull out your notes, whatever you've got. Exodus chapter 7. And we are going to be getting into, the, we're going to be starting the plagues today. Right, we've, been, we've been following this path with Moses and Pharaoh, their, their showdown here. And they're going to be getting into, now the first plague is going to happen today. We're going to look at it. That's why today is called blood. It's the, it's the first plague. Um, but one of the things that I want to encourage you in this is to see it in color. right? See it not as, one, one of the problems I think with, with Exodus in general and with this book and with Moses is that these stories, because they're so exciting, they get told in Sunday school. Um, and, and to do them in Sunday school, they have to make them a little cuter than they are. Right? They have to make it a little bit cute. They can't, you can't really... If you made this into a movie and like, you really did it, it'd have to be rated R. Like it's, that's too much blood. Um, so because it's been kind of toned down and, and made for kids, we've, we have those images in our heads, right? You, you have the flannel graphs of Moses and, and the cartoons and the VeggieTales version and that kind of thing, right? We have that in our heads, but we don't really see it the way that it, it is because it's this epic showdown, not of Moses and Pharaoh, but of Yahweh and these false gods. That's really what this is about. It's a, it's a showdown of Yahweh versus these false gods of Egypt. That's what this, this really boils down to. So anyway, I want you to I encourage you to kind of really see it for the, the depth of, of what it really is here, and the real life that happened. We'll start off with verses 1 through 7, calling this speak. And Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt I bring, and bring out the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as Yahweh commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. <coughs> so Moses' primary protest up to this point, primary thing that he has argued with God about is Pharaoh won't listen to me, right? He says, Pharaoh won't listen to me. Pharaoh won't listen to me. Who am I? I'm nobody. Who are you to send? Who are you? Who are you that is sending me? And he, he's concerned because he's like, I'm just, I'm just this little nobody. Pharaoh's not going to listen to me. And the interesting thing here is God says, that's actually the point, right? He, <laughs> Moses is so worried that Pharaoh won't listen to him, and here God's like, yeah, I know. That's the point. That's, that's part of the plan, is for you to fail initially. Where he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen. 
He's so worried about how am I going to say it to where Pharaoh will do what you want him to do. And God's like, no, no, listen, he's not going to listen to you. And then I'm going to do all these signs and wonders through you, and he's still not going to listen to you. Right? That's, God is telling him, your words will fail. 100%. But go say them anyway. Right? That's his point is, go do what I tell you to do anyway. Say what I've given you to say. I've told you to say this. I've told you, and I'm telling you, it's not going to work. And that's really true of us as well. Right? Not necessarily that, that people won't listen to us. That's not a guarantee. But God has told us, hey, go and share the gospel. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all of the man, do baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Or he tells you, go and share the gospel with people that you encounter. He doesn't guarantee the results. And he actually does tell us that we'll be rejected by men, that we'll be that, that we're going to be reviled and persecuted and all these things. Like, he does kind of guarantee that there, it's not always going to work. It's not always going to be this good news, this gospel, good news that he has given us is not always going to be received as such. But he says, go do it anyway. It reminds me of, we had a, a guy here a couple um, months ago named Titus, who is a, um, a, a church, he's a head of the church planning organization that our church planners in Indonesia uh, serve through and he kind of oversees that and, and so he <coughs> he was here visiting us he's oversees this church planning organization and his his like strategy is like very minimal he he boils it down in in and i'm not sure if this at first i thought this was just broken english but i actually just i think it's intentional he he says say gospel he says just say gospel Say gospel, say gospel, say gospel. And what he means is, is like, if I, if I meet somebody, he says, if I, if I meet somebody and I get to know them, he's like, in five minutes, like, I, I was having a conversation with them. Who am I? Who are you? Like, how are you? And, and basic introductory kind of things. Then I just share the gospel with them. I just say gospel to that person. That's his, that's like his big missional strategy which for an American is not sufficient, right? Like that's just, for us, we're like, no, we have to have all these different things. And, and, cause he's, and he's had conversations with people where he says, that they say, well, don't you have to build this relationship over time to where you can eventually share the gospel? And he's like, yeah, you have to build a relationship. It takes five minutes, right? He's like, you have to build enough relationship to be able to say the gospel to them. You can't just come up and assault them with it, but it doesn't take that long. It just doesn't take that long to get to a point where you could actually share the gospel with somebody. Just say the gospel. And, and a lot of our problem is we get hung up on this idea of, but what are they going to think? What are they going to say? What if they don't believe me? What if they reject me? And they, like, the response is, so what? Maybe that's part of God's plan. Like it is with Moses here. Moses knows God ahead of time tells him, you go tell Pharaoh, he's not going to listen to you. Then we're going to do a bunch of stuff, a bunch of signs and wonders, and he's still not going to listen to you. Isn't that amazing to think about the position Moses is in? And yet that's what God has given him to do, and, and maybe that's what God has given you to do. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, has given a similar charge in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 through 11. 
<coughs> he says this, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, blind and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Right? He, he's, God's giving them this charge of, you're going to go and go s- preach to these people. Go say, say what I've given you to these people. But they're going to not really hear you. They're really not going to see. They're really not going to understand. Their hearts are going to be dull. They're, they're not going to respond. And so then Isaiah says, verse 11, Then I said, how long, O Lord? Like, how long is this mission? He wants to know, how long am I going to have to keep doing this, keep preaching to people who are not going to listen to me? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. Whoa. All right, he says, just say what I've given you to say. It's going to be up to, the results are going to be up to God. And he tells him, furthermore, the purpose of this, the reason that I want you to go and do this, the reason that we're going to do all these signs and wonders, the reason all these things are going to happen is so that the Egyptians and the Israelites, all the people, right, the people I'm freeing you from and the people that I am freeing will know who Yahweh is. He said, at the end of this, they're going to know who I am. This is going to be clear. And so Moses and Aaron, it says, did just as Yahweh commanded them. They're faithful to God and trusted that he would be faithful to them. And that's really all God wants of us. He says, be faithful to me, trust that I'll be faithful to you. All right, number two, serpents. Verses 8 through 13. Then Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as Yahweh commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as Yahweh had said. Okay, so Pharaoh wants a miracle, right? He's he's given this challenge um, between Yahweh saying, I want you to, to let the people go so they can come and worship me. Pharaoh's like, if this is guy's real, if this is really this divinity here that is demanding something of me prove it and so he asks for this miracle it's a direct challenge to him because he he viewed himself as divine pharaoh the pharaoh was viewed as a divine being in in egyptian culture and so he's seeing this as a direct challenge and if yahweh wanted pharaoh to do something his messengers would need to prove that he had power Right? Pharaoh's saying, if you want me to do something for you, if you want me to do this, you're going to have to prove that there's power behind this, that it's real. That's not really an uncommon or even unreasonable request, right? That he's saying, I want God to show himself to me. Many of you have probably thought that yourselves. I want God to prove himself to me in some way. 
And so they're going to do this thing with the serpents and, and, and the staff and the serpents. And this is a, a direct intentional challenge to Pharaoh's authority because serpents were the, the symbol of Pharaoh's authority in Egypt. I put this in the, in the handout. If you, if you have the, uh, the study guide, I put this passage in here. This is the, when, when a Pharaoh took the throne, this is what he would say. He recites. This would be his kind of uh, induction ceremony. He would recite this. He would say, O great one, O magician, O fiery snake, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule a leader of the living. Let me be powerful, a leader of spirits. So he would use this symbol of the snake, that the fear that a snake would cast in the heart of someone, that's the fear that he wanted cast in the hearts of his people. And so he would use that symbol. And so when he casts the staff down and it becomes a serpent, that's a direct challenge to Pharaoh's authority. But it fails to impress, right? Because Pharaoh says, I've seen my guys do this too. I've seen my, my magicians can do this. So he gets all these magicians to come in and they do the same thing, right? They, they cast their, their staffs down and they become serpents. But Aaron's staff then eats the magicians, which proves God's authority and power over Pharaoh's. And furthermore, in Egyptian culture, eating something was a way that you absorbed its power. So not only does he prove his authority and power over it, but it also seemed to be this, this direct symbol of like taking Pharaoh's power away from him. So the question, is, the question that you might have is like, well, how do they do the trick, right? The magic trick here. How did they do this magic trick? Is it possible that this is some kind of sleight of hand illusion? Right, we can believe <coughs> that Aaron did it God's way because he's using God's power. We're like, yes, comfortable with that. God can do miracles, so he could he can make that happen. But, but how come these Egyptian magicians? How come they could do the same thing? But that's the question we have, and we go like, was well, it some kind of sleight of hand? Some kind of like you know, you had the this, the serpent behind the staff somehow, and he like. Cast it. You know, we've, seen, we've seen these illusionists, right? We've seen David Blaine. We've seen these guys. We, like, oh, yeah, they can do crazy stuff. Like, they must just be the same kind of thing. But that's not, and that's possible, but that's not likely, right? There are all these, so the Egyptians worshiped these false gods, right? We have these, this plethora of false gods. But what we can really see the way that Scripture talks about false gods is that behind these false gods, behind each of these false gods, is a demon. It's not nothing. It's not nothing. There's actually a demon behind these false gods. So there is demonic power, and demonic power is real, and it can have real effects. It can have real effects. And so it's, so how did they do this trick? It was real. It was done under demonic power. Just as Aaron cast his staff and it became a serpent under God's power, they did this under the power of these demons. And this is a, an important thing that we keep in mind. This is a, an important. This is an important reality that we can that we need to accept, that demonic power is real. Because if we can see, then there's all these false religions, right? There are all these these other religions and people that worship them, and people people that worship in these religions, they can often feel like they have real experiences. They feel real spiritual power in their lives. 
And so then the question is, as you encounter someone who has had that experience, right, even with, even with straight satanic worship, and they tell you, like, well, I had this experience, the question then is, how do you respond to that, right? Do you say, well, that's not real. It was, in your, it was just in your head. It was in your mind. It was, it was false. It wasn't a real experience. Or do we say, no, that is real, but any, any spiritual worship, any spirit aside from the spirit of God, the spirit of, uh, of Yahweh, of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, aside from that power, if it's anything that's not affirming Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it's demonic power. It's real. It can have real effects, but it's demonic power. And that's not just demonic power. Demonic power doesn't have to just be used in straight evil ways, right? Not just used to cause pain, not just used to cause chaos. All it has to do in order to accomplish the goals of Satan and his demons is to draw worship and draw glory away from Yahweh. Right? That's all it has to do is draw that worship away. So it can be to cause something good to happen. It can be to heal someone. It can be to bless someone. It can make someone feel happy, feel joyful, feel free from something. As long as they're not worshiping God, as long as they're not worshiping Jesus, they're drawn away from him, that's, that's Satan's goal. Ultimately, that will lead to eternal suffering. But in the meantime, it can, it can appear to have positive effects. And so what we see here is <coughs> these, these magicians are using real demonic power in the name of these false gods. And the Apostle Paul talks about Satan's use of power in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, where he says, The coming of the lawless one He's talking about the end times here. But he says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Right? He's saying there are these signs and these wonders and this power that Satan and his demons possess and that God allows them to use just as these Egyptian sorcerers were using this power to transform their staffs into serpents. And the beautiful thing we see here is that he swallows them up. Right? He's still, even though they have power, even though these demons have power, even though these magicians can access that power, it's nothing compared to the power of Yahweh, symbolized by the fact that he swallows them up. You see Paul say something similar in 1 Corinthians 15, 54. It says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. He's swallowing it up. He's taking it over. Yahweh's power is far greater than all the demonic forces combined. So it's important that we acknowledge that demonic power is real, but that it is no power over the power of God. It's no match. It's not even, we see these mo- you see these movies with de- you know, demonic possession and that kind of thing, and it's just like very... Uh, this this very like close battle right between god and these demons and they're, they're, they're like doing all these tricks and everything to make it work and it's this tight battle is who's gonna win it's not like that at all right god's power is overwhelmingly stronger than the power of satan and his demons but spiritual warfare is real it's vital that we remember that there's a spiritual battle going on all the time even when we can't see it as clearly as this Right, this is clear, right? You have these magicians, 
they worship, these sorcerers worship these false gods. We have Moses and Aaron following Yahweh. It's a direct battle. It's easy to see who, what's going on here. It's a battle of gods. But in our own lives, that is also true. Whether or not, whether it's as explicit as this, there's a spiritual battle. There are demons at work in our world today. Satan doesn't seem to be using the same tactics in our time and place, in our culture, as here. Because he uses whatever strategy is going to work. And if he made it that explicit, it would be much easier for us to see and much easier for us to fight. But instead, he can cloak it, he can hide it, he can work in ways that are more subtle, but just as effective in our own lives. It doesn't mean that he isn't waging war. It's important to remember Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, which tells us this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That when, God, that, that when, when Satan does, and he does this often in our culture, is pits it as a, a battle of humans. Right, that we look at other people and that person's evil. These people are evil. These people are, are what the problem is. Where we, that's, that's kind of the, the, the strategy in our culture. Divide people up and declare people an enemy. Declare people evil. Declare they are the problem. And it takes our focus off of, off of the real enemy, Satan. Right? When, when your focus, the focus of your anger and, and hate and, and dis, distaste, when your focus is on another human being, Satan is winning. When your focus gets on a group of people, especially when it becomes like them, right? those people, you can give them a name and, and claim them and that they're the problem. Satan is winning when he, when he puts you in that position. Satan is winning when he can put you in that position and make you hate people who are lost. Right? We have to see them as lost. We have to see them as being deceived, actively being deceived by Satan. And pray for them. Right? Care about them. Want good for them. Want them to find the gospel, find the good news. And recognize that they are actively being deceived by the enemy. And we need to not get caught in that and be deceived by demonizing human beings. All right. Last section here, verses 14 through 25. Look at the water. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says Yahweh, By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all the pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. 
Moses and Aaron did as Yahweh commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptian could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. As Yahweh had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the water, Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after, the, after Yahweh struck the Nile. So the, we have to first take into account the Nile significance. It's not just a river to look at. It's not just a beautiful landscape. It was their, their means of water. It's a source of life, right? The, where they drew water from. It was their m- primary mode of transportation. The economy of the Nile ran up, uh, of Egypt ran up and down the Nile. It was their standard of measurement, or you know, how far something is from the Nile. And it was an object of worship. This is a big deal. This was the, the center of Egyptian life. Obviously, the Egyptian civilization grew up around the Nile. It was the, what made their civilization possible. What we can see is that, and what we will see over the coming weeks, is that Yahweh used these plagues not just to cause trouble for Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but to a directly challenge their deities. That this is spiritual warfare. And so we see Moses and Aaron interrupt Pharaoh's daily ritual. His daily ritual, daily routine, was to go to the banks of the Nile every morning. We don't know why necessarily. It doesn't tell us what he's doing there. It could have been that he's going there to bathe or to, to swim. It could be that he's going there to worship. That was a primary god for them. But it's how he started every day, right? They, like, God's like, hey, he goes there every day. You can go there and take care of this. They interrupt and ruin his day right from the start. And create this national crisis. Or this, would have been, this would have ground Egypt to a halt. Everything that happened centered around this. They, they couldn't drink water. Uh, their fish were a staple of their diet. Now they're all dead. Everyone's just digging near the Nile to get water to drink. Right, some, some commentators even think that this, where he says here um, in verse 19, the end of verse 19, where he says there should be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Everywhere else in, in the, the first five books of the Torah, uh, when it says vessels of wood and vessels of stone, it's not actually talking about cups and bowls. It's talking about gods. It's talking about um, carvings of gods and, and representations of gods. And what, what they think is that at the time the Egyptians every morning would wash their gods with water and that they were still wet when Moses did this and so that in that moment all of their idols were covered with blood. An even more direct attack. And so, and the, the Israelites would have suffered too, right? This is, think about the, as I said, to see it in color, like think about the horror of this situation. Think about the, how dark this is. Like a river literally flowing with blood. And it's a big river. It's not a stream. It's a big river flowing with blood. Blood in all of the, 
the canals, all the horses, they're digging for water by the Nile. And they have to. They have to drink for a week. You can't not drink water for a week. They're digging up this water. And then, Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh's response is, well, can my magicians do this? And they go, well, we're going to have to get some water. So they dig up, get some water, and they bring it to the magicians, and they go, yeah, oh, we can do it. Well, now we can't drink that. <laughs> we have to go dig some more. Right? They, the, their, 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 like, action only actually made the problem worse. Right? Their response, like, all they could do was make the problem worse. They couldn't reverse it. Right? God didn't, obviously did not allow them to reverse this action, but they could make it worse if they wanted to. And we see here that the, the first plague also foreshadows the last plague, the last plague being the death of the firstborn. Blood is part of it there, that blood is a symbol of God's judgment. There's also the means of God's salvation, but it's a symbol of God's judgment. And we actually see this again, this, this picture of rivers of blood actually occurs again in Revelation 16, verses 3 through 6. It says this, The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets. You have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserved. So what he's pointing to is the fact that this blood is a symbol of judgment, right? That, that in the end, all water will be turned to blood, is essentially what he's saying. That when God brings judgment, all the water will be turned to blood, and it will be a symbol of God's judgment on the people. But for us, it's also a symbol of God's salvation, right? The blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb, is what redeems us. The fact that Jesus shed his blood on the cross for us gives us the means of salvation, that he died for us, that we can be saved by his blood, that we can be washed in his blood and made clean, made new, because of his sacrifice for us. And the choice is either to accept his sacrifice, or his blood as sacrifice for us, or to be doomed to drink blood and judgment. That's the choice. He says, I, this is a free choice. This, this is a free gift, the salvation, the blood of Jesus is a free gift. We have that choice to, to accept that or we will be doomed to this fate just as, as we see Pharaoh and the Egyptians here. That we are not to harden our hearts but turn to him and accept his sacrifice for us. Let's wrap it up here with how should we then live some possible takeaways from today. Number one, respond to, what God, respond to God's call to say what he has given you to say. Or just as Moses and Aaron were told, just go say what I've given you to say. Don't worry about how, the, how they're going to respond. Don't worry about how Pharaoh's going to respond. Same is true for us. Just, we are to go and say what God has given us to say to testify what he has done in our lives and not to worry about how it will be received. Not to worry about how someone will respond. But to go and say gospel. Number two, recognize the demonic forces at work in our world today and claim God's authority over them. Or to keep our eyes open to the spiritual warfare that's happening, recognize that this is real, and recognize that God is more powerful. 
And then number three, to be set free from the blood of judgment by being washed in the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this story, and we thank you for this truth that we can uh, see in, these, in this chapter of Exodus. And we pray that you would give us the boldness to say the things you've given us to say. We pray that we would keep our eyes open for the demonic forces that work in our lives. And that we would be thankful for your blood that you shed for us. That we could be set free from this judgment. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Would you all stand?